This is Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes. Those are the first six syllables of the Ballad of Ira Hayes as sung by its songwriter, Peter Lafarge. If you're like me when I started researching the Ballad of Ira Hayes, you probably don't recognize Peter Lafarge's voice. But I'll bet my lunch money you recognize this one. Call him drunken Ira Hayes, he won't answer anymore. Not the whiskey-drinking Indian, nor the Marine that went to war. That, of course, is Johnny Cash. His recording of the Ballad of Ira Hayes reached the number three position on the Billboard Country Singles Chart in 1964. The song was also recorded by Pete Seeger. Gather round me, you people, a story I will tell. Chris Christopherson. About a brave young Indian you should remember well. Bob Dylan. From the tribe of Pima Indians, a proud and a peaceful band. Hazel Dickens. Who farmed the Phoenix Valley in Arizona land. And Towns Van Zandt. Call him drunken Ira Hayes. Won't answer anymore. Not to whiskey drinking Indian, the Marine that went to war. It tells the story of Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian who joined the U.S. Marines during World War II and, along with five other soldiers, became the subject of one of the most famous photos of all time. You've probably seen it. It's called The Raising of the Flag on Iwo Jima and it depicts six Marines in full combat gear hoisting an American flag on top of a mountain. It won photographer Joe Rosenthal a Pulitzer Prize, inspired statues and Hollywood movies, and made Hayes an instant celebrity. But is celebrity what Ira Hayes wanted? I'm Bobby Waller, and this is the real-life story of the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes was, by all accounts, a quiet kid. The girls on the res trusted him because he was the only boy who never teased or taunted them. He was a nice guy, soft-spoken, uninclined to express himself out loud, though he clearly had a keen mind for language. His teachers at the Phoenix Indian School routinely gave him high marks in English, and he seemed to always have his nose in a book. So it's not that he lacked the words to express himself, he just didn't see the point in it. He was like his dad in that way. Joe Hayes could go days without talking, and even then, he'd only speak when spoken to. Ira admired that. To him, Joe was a paragon of Pima stoicism, a veteran of World War I who neither bragged nor complained. He just quietly answered the call of duty. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. And so, when the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, Ira knew he had to fight. He answered the call of duty on August 26, 1942, by voluntarily joining the U.S. Marine Corps. 
the Corps trained him as a paratrooper and shipped him out to the South Pacific. Ira served as an automatic rifleman in the first phase of the Bougainville campaign, which lasted from November of 43 to November of 44 and established a foothold against the Japanese in the northern Solomon Islands. Just a few months later, with barely enough time to catch his breath, let alone recover from the trauma of combat, Ira was sent to fight for control of a small volcanic island just 750 miles south of Tokyo called Iwo Jima. The U.S. and its allies had run the Japanese out of most of the Pacific and were gearing up for an invasion of Japan itself. All they needed was a staging area, and Iwo Jima fit the bill perfectly. It was mostly flat, had three already existing airstrips, and best of all, it was an easy two-hour flight to Emperor Hirohito's bedroom window. Iwo Jima was next-level shit, and as Ira soon found out, it was Bougainville on steroids. The U.S. arrived on the morning of February 19, 1945. The Marines' 4th and 5th Divisions landed on the island's southeastern beach and began fighting their way north. Ira was part of an attachment that broke off from the 5th to claim the southernmost tip of the island, Mount Suribachi. The climb was excruciating. Every inch of progress was gained through a fight to the death, and every fight followed immediately on the heels of the one before it. Bougainville had been a slow burn, but Iwo Jima was a wildfire. Fast, unpredictable, and devastating at every turn. That's because the Emperor's forces knew the outcome of the entire war depended on Iwo Jima, and they weren't about to give it up easily. Americans may have outnumbered the Japanese 3-1, to one, but Japan had the home field advantage and an almost supernatural sense of resolve. Imperial soldiers had dug an elaborate network of tunnels and caves from which they could spring at any moment to pick off unsuspecting marines like tin ducks in a carnival gallery. And they didn't seem to care if they died in the process. To die for the emperor was to die with honor. Ira could relate to that kind of honor. Dedication to your people is a pillar of Pima philosophy. Still, nothing could have prepared him for Iwo Jima. This was not the warfare of his ancestors. The weapons were bigger and louder and could kill more people in less time. They afforded no dignity to the enemy, no time to pray for their souls. Americans were just targets, enemies of the Kami who didn't deserve prayer anyway. They deserved to die. And die they did. For four, almost five straight days, Ira saw things no man should ever see. Tough guys from Brooklyn and Texas sobbing for their mothers. Smart kids like him, reduced to pure, raw, panic, irrational, no brains left, sometimes literally. Ira knew the sound a bullet makes when it pierces a skull. The sound of friends in the throes of death. The changes their faces make when their souls cross over. Good men, decent men, hard-fighting men who didn't deserve to die, but there they were, face down in the mud. And there was Ira, somehow still alive and uninjured against all odds. The strong but silent Pima warrior pushed further into hell, 
higher up that mountain until on the morning of February 23rd, after nearly five full days of fighting, he reached the peak. Troops put up a temporary flag around 10.30 a.m. and replaced it with a larger, sturdier, more visible flag around 1 p.m. That second flag is the one Ira helped raise, along with Sergeant Michael Strank, Corporal Harlan Block, and PFCs Harold Schultz, Harold Keller, and Harlan Sousley. Joe Rosenthal of the Associated Press was there too, and took a picture that went on to become one of the most famous pictures ever taken. You've probably seen it. The six Marines have just pushed the bottom of a flagpole into the rocky ground at the top of a mountain. Ira is the one on the left, at the topmost part of the pole. At the moment the picture was taken, he had just let go of it, and it was on its way to a fully upright position. It's hard to overstate just how evocative that picture actually was. It ran in almost every major paper in the world and was the first photo to win a Pulitzer Prize the same year it was taken. It became an instant symbol of American grit and hard-earned victory and captured attention at every level of American society right on up to the presidency. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been looking for new ways to sell the war bonds that were keeping the country afloat, and when he saw how popular Rosenthal's picture had become, he got an idea. He'd send the flag from the picture, along with the soldiers who'd hoisted it, on a bond-selling tour. They'd go from city to city reenacting the moment depicted in the photo, and the wallets would practically fly out of the public's back pockets. The kickoff occurred on May 9, 1945, in Washington, D.C. Ira squirmed as the crowd thickened. This sort of public adulation wasn't exactly for him, but duty called, and Ira reluctantly answered. With them were PFC Rene Gagnon and Navy Hospital Corpsman John Bradley. Both had fought on Surabachi, but neither were in Rosenthal's picture. The lineup confused Ira. Wasn't this tour supposed to be about that picture? So where were Keller and Schultz? Don't they deserve to be here? I mean, I get why Block, Sousley, and Strank aren't here. Dead men can't exactly march in parades, but Keller and Schultz are still alive. And good guys, too. Without them, this whole scene is bullshit. Unless, of course, it's not really about that picture. Maybe it's just an excuse to wave some flags and feel good about ourselves. But if that's the case, then why invite me? There were plenty of other guys who climbed that mountain. Plenty of other guys who took that island. Guys who lost their arms, guys who lost their legs, guys whose wives are now widows and whose children are now fatherless. Better men than me and far more deserving. So why the hell am I here? The crowd hit maximum density and the ceremony was underway. The three soldiers began ascending the steps of Capitol Hill with the famous flag from the picture. The symbolism was not lost on the literary-minded Private Hayes. They were ceremonially ascending Surabachi. Why anyone would ever want to relive that experience was a mystery to Ira, but as always, he answered the call of duty, no matter how surreal it became. The climb was slow and deliberate, as it had been on Iwo Jima. There were bodies everywhere, and eyes were upon them at all times. Sweat formed on Ira's forehead, and the knot in his stomach hardened as they approached the top of the steps. 
The din of the crowd sounded more and more like the constant gunfire on the flatlands of Iwo Jima. Time moved in dreadful slowness as Ira anticipated the fever pitch he knew would accompany the big moment. And then it happened. The three soldiers planted a flag at the top of Capitol Hill and the crowd went insane. Canyon and Bradley smiled broadly and turned to face the admiring throng, but Ira hesitated. He was a quiet guy, a thinker. This kind of unbridled emotion had always made him nervous, but even more so after Iwo Jima. He pivoted slowly to face the crowd and hesitantly opened his eyes, only to be instantly blinded by a flash. He winced and turned his head. What the hell was that? Who's shooting at me now? It seemed to come from all directions. Ira's breathing turned quick and shallow, and he felt like he might pass out. Jesus, no, not in front of all these people. Hold it together, man. He summoned the spirit of his father. Surely Joe would know how a true Pima warrior would keep his cool in a situation like this. Ira drew a deep breath and reopened his eyes. The flashes of light continued, only now he realized they were coming from cameras. He wasn't under fire. This wasn't Surabachi. It was a farce, a publicity stunt. All he had to do was get through it, then he could go back to his quarters and drink himself unconscious. Ira kept his eyes open for the remainder of the ceremony, but he never smiled, and he was beginning to seriously hate cameras. It was a camera, after all, that had immortalized him as a military icon against his will. It was a camera that had focused on him instead of any number of other more willing, and in Ivor's opinion, more deserving Marines. Cameras are what now hounded him everywhere he went, and cameras would continue to hound him for the rest of his days when all he really wanted was to hunker down on a bottle of whiskey and forget it all. I'm gonna ride you till you can't stand up. But when you do stand up, they're gonna be Marines. It was a camera that put him in a John Wayne movie, The Sands of Iwo Jima, where he played himself but could barely recognize himself. He was aging rapidly and clearly uncomfortable in his own skin, or at least the skin the world had given him. He bounced from job to job, staying employed only as long as he could stave off the next bender. In the decade following his honorable discharge from the U.S. Marine Corps, Ira was arrested for drunken misconduct 52 times. Weary from a life of wandering, he returned to the res hoping to live in anonymity, but even there, the cameras followed him. He'd drink till he thought he'd finally slipped into oblivion, but then some tourist would drive up and ask, are you the Indian from that picture? Ira had never believed that tired old bullshit about tribal people fearing cameras steal your soul, but he was starting to believe that in his case, it might be true. Ira's last bender occurred on the night of January 23rd, 1955. He'd been playing cards with his brothers and friends when an altercation erupted between him and a fellow Pima named Henry Satoyant. The others fled with Ira and Henry still raging at one another, and in the morning, Ira was found dead outside in the cold. 
The county coroner declared Ira had died from a combination of alcohol poisoning and exposure to the elements, but Ira's brothers claimed it was Satoyant who killed him. We may never know, since no autopsy has ever been performed, but if we could climb up to marine heaven and ask Ira himself, I imagine he'd say something completely different. It wasn't the whiskey, and it wasn't Satoyant. It was that damn picture that killed him. Thanks for listening to Plucked, stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. This episode included music used by permission from my extremely generous friends, David Waterman, whose music you can find at facebook.com slash David Waterman slash videos, and Sage Arias, whose music you can buy at orchestrium.bandcamp.com and at halfpence hyphen and hyphen heypenny. That's halfpence and heypenny dot bandcamp.com slash releases. If you're a musician and you're willing to let us play your acoustic instrumentals on the show, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for originals or tunes from the public domain that we can legally use as background music. Drop us a line at pluckedpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be happy to hear from you. Our theme music is She's Easy to Dream About by John Emery. That's capital J-O-N, capital E-M-E-R-Y, all one word, at johnemerymusic.com. For more information on all these artists, please see the show notes for this episode at plucked.com. And for goodness sake, visit these artists' websites, go to their shows, fork over some of that sweet, sweet cheddar they so richly deserve. BTW Plucked is now available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or just about any other place fine podcasts are purveyed. Special thanks to our webmaster, Linda Easton. I'm Bobby Waller. Thanks for listening to Plucked.